<laughs> well, now you're the one who still needs to play all of the intro music. Yeah. Hey, I can hear it. <laughs> is it. Is the volume okay? Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. Good. It's a modern miracle. Welcome to a new episode of Plants and Pipettes. A very sad episode indeed, because this is the first episode where we're not in the same location. I mean, I haven't actually left Berlin yet, so it's not really sad. It's like a yeah. little dramatic to say it's sad. But it, it reminds me, it, it, fo it foreshadows how it will be in the future. It foreminds me of the, the future. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're practicing the remote setup thing for when I leave to London, which will hopefully happen in a month or so. So... Yeah, we have different setups at our own homes and we're hoping that everything works. I'm I'm also like watching Yoram through like a separate video Facebook messenger and yeah. his face looks super apprehensive now, <laughs> which is kind of concerning. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I'm um sometimes they there are little gaps in the uh in the signal coming here and I just hope that it doesn't really exist on recording if there are few things dear listeners please forgive us um we're still working on it to to get it working reliably it's always a little bit of a challenge i mean our, honestly our plan originally was to record two episodes tonight but maybe we record one and then we check that everything worked yeah yeah maybe we do that one later <laughs> just yeah. to kind of limit any of the the losses that can happen i had it reminds me um i have yeah there is actually something that from my end that could be a problem um, yeah, <laughs> just a sort of life tip. If you have any anything that's syncing something over the internet, turn it off now. Um, I'm trying to figure out if I have, but I don't think I have like Dropbox or anything running. I had one thing running, but that's off now. I don't think I would even know how to tell if I have things running. I just tried to reset my Apple password and it says, oh, we'll now send like a notification to your computer, which should pop up and then you can like re-log in and it didn't pop up. And then I got a warning message saying that someone in Frankfurt was logging into my Apple ID. So, so now there was a gap. So that a warning message that that somebody in Frankfurt was like logging onto my <laughs> my ID. So I don't know if they were or if it was just like some sort of glitch in the matrix. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um. So yeah, let's let's jump right in. Or should we talk a little bit about what we've done yesterday? Yesterday we were in the Botanical Gardens in Berlin, which was really lovely. Um, we're a little bit unlucky with the weather almost because it's been such a beautiful weekend, but we got like the few hours of day when it was kind of a bit grey. Um, yeah. But it was still pretty warm and pretty nice. We went with Yoram's family, so the little boy and his wife. Um, yeah. And this morning I actually realized that my, I want to say triceps, like which are the muscles like up <laughs> in the arm? I have sore arm muscles from lifting Yoram's baby because he's at the age where he like... He's heavy enough to carry that like it's most comfortable to put him on your hip, but he doesn't want to be on the hip because he can't see something. So you have to like turn him around and kind of like hold him up in the air. And at the same time, he's super like, he loves kicking his little legs about. So it's like this like shaking, bouncing thing <laughs> that you're constantly trying to stabilize to like stop from falling onto the ground. Um, quite an arm workout, I would say. It's a really good workout. I always say that he's a weight that grows with you um, as you get stronger. So does yeah. his weight increase and um, you constantly train. And yeah, especially, I mean, there are all these fitness devices that have... Um, shaky weights. Yeah, shaky weights. weights or moving bits or something that make it more challenging to use. Um, and yeah, he's definitely 
um, on par with some of these other devices that you pay good money for. So yeah, if you want a good workout, get a baby. <laughs> it's a very difficult way to go about it, I would say. Yeah. There are cheaper ways. That's <laughs> yeah, true. More convenient ways. There are ways, weights that you can store in a cupboard, for example, which I don't recommend doing to a baby. Not, not good for a baby, generally. No. All okay. right, shall we go straight to the paper? Yeah, let's go to the paper. It's my turn, right? Yeah, it, it should be your turn, I think. It's the paper of the week. It's the paper of the week. It's the paper of the week. I am doing a paper that was in eLife, which we don't do very often, mostly because eLife is a mix of plant and non-plant stuff. And sometimes I'm too lazy to look through to find the non-plant stuff. They don't do so many uh, to find the plant stuff. They don't do so many plant-based um, research articles. Um, but this one is by Yibo Dong et al. And it came out in August. So it's a couple of months ago. And it's called Natural Selection and Repeated Patterns of Molecular Evolution Following Allopatric Divergence. And I did this paper because um, I was looking at the introduction and I came across a concept which I actually hadn't heard about before. So maybe Yoram, you already know about it, but for me it was quite new. And then I was kind of like quite fascinated by what was happening. So it's this thing called the Eastern Asian and Eastern North America Floral Disjunction. Do you know what that is? No, I haven't. I, I can make something up based on the name that you have a separation, evolutionary separation of the the flower species types that you find on yeah North America and in Asia because they were together, right? Like prehistorically, these continents touched more and then they sort of drifted apart. And now only in Alaska, there's like this little like what used to be a land bridge and is then broken up. And now these are two separate landmasses that can't be o o with the land way. You can't reach it anymore. The thing is also the way the the first like humans reached um, North America. I think over this yeah, land bridge that then like broke up, and now and then they were stuck essentially. That's yeah. So that's the Bering Strait, and that is actually that does come up as part of it. Um, and I'll get a bit a little back to that a little bit later. But this is kind of this idea which is what you basically said that there's this similarity between um, these different plants, but a difference as well. So um, obviously Eastern Asia is very far away from Eastern North America. Obviously like Western North America is actually close to Eastern Asia, mm -hmm. but there's this weird phenomenon where there's a lot of species where they're found genera um, have only a few members of a species members and a couple of the species members are found in Eastern Asia and another couple are found on Eastern North America, but they're not found in the Western North America. Okay. And there's quite a few of these quite small, yeah, small genera, as I said, which only have a couple of species. And there's just like two on this side and two on the other side or one here and one there. And then nothing in between. And as you said, they have been separated for a long time, but at the same time, they had this common um, like bridge at some point. Mm -hmm. But it's a little bit of a... Um, mystery like a, a curious phenomenon it's called which has fascinated botanists for more than 300 uh, 250 years um yeah so i think it was kind of discussed a lot in the 1960s but even way back in like the 1700s like the 1750s one of the doctoral students of um, linnaeus kind of mentioned that there's hey there's this like weird similarity between these species in the mm -hmm. eastern asia and the eastern north america um yeah, and then, yeah, this another um, botanist, as a Gray, came in and sort of discussed it and um, did a series of paper on the topic. Um, and after that, there was kind of this, this focus. So there's like 65 genera or so of seed plants, 
with, as I said, these closely related species, um, which occur only in the two areas. Um, and usually there's just one or two members of the species um, okay. in total. And yeah, just a couple on each side. Um, so you have yeah. you have genera that you find on both places with individual species then, but are the species then specific to the areas? Yeah, so the species is um, specific to the area, but they, they belong to this joint genera, which is found also in the other ones, so either the East Asia or the East North America. Sorry, there, there was now now a gap. I, um, so the, they are found. You have these specific uh, the genera are then found a, across both end sides, right? Both east sides. Yes, um, yeah. but then yeah, usually the species themselves are specific just for one of the two zones, um, and usually there's not many other species in that genera. So it's like okay, just a couple. Um, and there's been a lot of look into kind of what happened here and when these um, diverged, because as we kind of have been discussing they are very closely related, they're at the general level, but at the same time, there's all this physical separation. And at the same time, the question is like, when did they separate and how did they separate and what caused them to be like mm -hmm. in these two areas and not in any of the areas in between? Like what's the thing that's driven this like quite weird? So it's not a situation like um, Australia and Antarctica and South Africa where they were like literally touching. So there was like mm -hmm. clearly like, it's it's like there was this bridge, but there was a whole lot in between still. So all of the West of North America. Yeah doesn't have these species. So this is kind of the... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they've been um, a lot of work, as I said, recently looking at like when they diverge and kind of the, the divergence that's happened in these different species. Uh, and they've done this looking at like the normal ways of looking at like certain marker genes in the plastid um, and also like some internally transcribed spacer DNA sequences are just again like a barcode people use for looking at um, time of divergence. And mostly they seem to have separated from each other, the two groups, um, in like the Miocene to Pleistocene mm -hmm. time periods. That's how many million years ago? Yeah, right? <laughs> I, I like it when papers like drop these times and I'm like, when, why should I know that? Should, <laughs> yeah. I, should I know that? I think if you do evolutionary biology, you just like, no. So I think um, Miocene is like between 23 million years ago and 5 million years ago. Mm -hmm. And then the Pleistocene is two and a half to 11 million years ago to 11,000 years ago. So it's quite a wide like mm -hmm. separation of time. Um, and then they also said in the paper, like some of them were also earlier and some of them later. So there's, there's quite a different time period, but most of it was kind of around the Miocene period. Yeah, This was a little bit vague to me, to be honest. <laughs> um, but the aim of this paper was basically to um, look at how there's been divergence between members of the pair. So you're imagining like two species belonging to the same genre and one of the species is found in the North um, East America and one is found in the East Asia. And they want to like put them in a pair. And then they were looking at these um, orthologist genes in these species. So rubisco in species one and rubisco in species two. And then looking for all of the different um, gene pairs across those two species. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then they did this for 20 different allopatric species pairs. So 20 pairs where one of them's in Asia and one of them is in America. Yeah. And looking at all of the orthologous genes inside those species. Um, they had some restrictions. So they only looked um, if they were expressed in RNA-seq data, which are those probably the genes are being expressed. 
um, they only looked at genes which were orthologs but were also like single copy genes because if you have duplication of copies you're likely to get different ways that the genes evolve just because there's like now redundancy and like functional like neo-functionalization and stuff like that so they kind of mm-hmm. limited um, their their genes but still like between one species and its pair they generally found like a really high amount of these these um putative orthologs they called them pogs so putatively ortholog orthologous genes pogs okay and so it was like above 50 percent, so 50 to 70 percent basically of the entire genome fit into these they could pair them up okay yeah and now you've got so they've got like 70 percent of the genome in the pair and then you've got 20 different pairs so you've got quite a lot of power from looking at all of these different um pairs and all of these different genes in the pairs and they also selected like quite a diverse um range of different plant species so belonging to different genres so like lamials aspargals sapindals pandanals saxifagals <laughs> ranunculals piperals proteals magnolials gentianals like i literally know what none of those are i can guess what a magnolial is <laughs> i guess it's a magnolia flower. Um, yeah i want to say like i know some of these words <laughs> yeah not, not <laughs> ranuncula i guess we know what that is like this yeah but, Pandanal is it like a pandan plant or is it a panda? It's very hard to tell. Like, <laughs> I, I think we would know if there would be pandas growing in East uh, maybe, yeah, yeah. North America. But in Eastern Asia, maybe maybe there could be pandas. There could be. And anyway, okay, so they basically said the the point was to always have these pairs and to get a, a wide range of species, um, and then they also added some extra I think four extra pairs which weren't represented only in this East Asia East North America because they wanted to have a little bit of a wider um, Mm -hmm. category to look at how changes happen over time when you have separated um, species yeah Um, and also they said they included the other species to get like a, a wider amount of evolutionary history and I think it's because most of these East Asia East North America have been shown to mostly have separated in this Miocene period so I think they added these extra four just to like make it a little bit more diverse as far as evolutionary timing you know Mm -hmm. yeah so they're basically looking at how the genes are changing in the species across the two pairs over time and they use this really standard tool that people use to look at gene evolution, which is looking at the relative number of synonymous substitutions and non-synonymous substitutions. So this is basically... Um, yeah, so the synonymous substitutions are the ones, right, where um, you have nucleotide exchanges that don't affect the amino acid that's then made. Mm-hmm. Right, and the non-synonymous ones are where you change the amino acid. So you have these these codons in the DNA, these three-letter codes, and usually the third um, letter um, and sometimes even the second letter can be exchanged for some other letters, and still the code points to the same amino acid. Um, yeah. And this gives some redundancy in or some stability to the whole genome. Um, and also allows for some regula- regulatory action happening on this, like uh, across species. So you have some species that prefer to use a certain type of codon to code for an amino acid as opposed to other species that use a different um, codon for that same amino acid. Um, and with that, you can very easy. Uh, it's a good tool to look at, um, yeah, how related things are and. Um, yeah, how close they are together and how compatible they are, essentially. Yeah, and generally the idea is if you're making these synonymous changes, it's like you're not 
changing the gene, you're not changing its ultimate protein and the outcome. But if you're making these um, non-synonymous changing, you're like selecting towards, it's a positive selection. So you're trying to change your gene and you're trying to change your protein. And I'm, I'm obviously like kind of um, anthropomorphizing these these genes now by saying you're trying, they're trying to change, but you know yeah. what I mean? Like there's like selection in a direction. Um, so then you look at kind of the ratio of the non-synonymous over the synonym, synonymous. And basically if it's over one, then there's kind of this positive selection. And if it's under one, there's like either just like normal, nothing much happening. Um, or like purifying selection. So, yeah. Um, and what they found when they looked across all of their 20 pairs and all of their 70% of all of the genes in all of those um, pairs, so it's a lot, is that there was quite a similar pattern of the amount of synonymous and non-synonymous changes in all of their pairs. Um, they had this really um, clear uh, thing where a lot of the genes were um, having changes which were on this um very synonymous side and only a few of them like so there's kind of a a big bump a normal curve where everything's just kind of changing it it, Mm -hmm. the same thing not much happening and then only a very small percentage of things which were changing um much more and less than two percent of the the putative orthologs were actually under strong positive selection Okay. Um, so they said this was like actually the results of this paper was quite small and the discussion was very long so they were kind of like they, they did these calculations and like what's happening let's try and explain what we see because it's all a little bit like it's a large data set it's kind of almost meta-analysis-y in the way it's like yeah. a lot of um, looking at a lot of things so I was just trying to explain the patterns they saw so they said okay these areas presumably they have the same latitude they have a similar climate they also have this influence from being on the east coast in both situations so this probably makes that overall the environment for the plants is quite similar mm-hmm. so that means that most of the genes that the they have from their ancestors probably don't need to evolve very rapidly there's probably like just slowly evolving and mostly there's just like conserving ancestral functions and that's why you're getting all those like synonymous changes where like the proteins aren't getting messed around Mm -hmm. on the other hand they say that there was a few as i said like this less than two percent which were under strong positive selection and then they say okay like although the overall climate was quite diff uh, quite similar um between the two east asia and um northeast east north america there also will be some like micro difference or like biotic stresses, like different fungi growing there or different like other interactors, pollinators, these kind of things. And that could be driving um, those like small percent, which is getting like, quite strongly driven. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when they looked at kind of the gene annotate of the, annotation of those strongly changing pogs, they did see some like potential abiotic and biotic like um, uh, interacting genes. So some indication that this could be the thing, but honestly, like, their conclusion was mostly that it was really different for each different species what which these like rare two percent were like what their their actual function was mm-hmm. yeah so um then basically the there was a quite a lot of more detail in the paper so i everybody can go and have a look at it if they're interested in this kind of stuff but for me what i thought was also interesting um was that they were then trying to look at this divergent, this synonymous and non-synonymous, and make their own like time scale of how long it's been since these two partners have diverged based on the changes they saw between the two, the members of the pair. Um, and they said that the, the, the different taxon pairs had kind of diverged to different extents. Mm-hmm. And this was probably because of, mostly um, because of the timing since that they've um, diverged. Yeah. 
but mostly what they found in their studies was representative of what other people have found in their studies using different methods. So they were like, okay, yeah, pretty good. And then, yeah, as you said, it comes back to this Bering land bridge. So this this possibility that everything just like could move across this Bering land bridge. Um, and as you said, like the, the land bridge kind of kept North America and Asia connected for quite a long time. And it was even the way that humans, yeah, I suppose to have crossed from Asia into the Americas um, quite early on. But one question is, how is it that there's the separation, this like species divide between these two areas if they were still connected by the land bridge? Because it looks from their timing that the species divide was happening earlier um, then the land bridge actually disappeared. So they should still be able to disperse. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of some like different discussions about like what caused um, the divide. One option is that you have this kind of gradual movement across the land bridge and then um, things are ultimately disappearing from the middle. Mm-hmm. And the other option is that there was never really complete connection between the areas but there was rare events called like long distance dispersal so like i don't know let's say a bird picked up a seed and flew for a really long time usually it's either a seed or pollen which can move really long distance and these rare long distance dispersal events then managed to establish populations okay okay so in the other so there's kind of these two hypotheses right yeah but still why why would a bird then like why would it fly all the way to the to the east coast and not just to the west coast or right like the separation birds to migrate man hmm? birds migrate man <laughs> I yeah <don't> know. yeah <laughs> ask the birds yeah I, i think it doesn't have to be a bird i think it could also be like some chance event or like you can imagine if there's like herd animals which are moving across maybe they like take something in their fur or in their poo or like i mean it's still a really a, a huge amount of of distance yeah so it could happen also in stages um, and then have disappearance or, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there could be, I could imagine multiple things that also there, maybe there's a common movement towards the east um, in during the year. Now I'm too stupid to, to imagine how the world rotates and what that makes, <laughs> like, for migratory animals, if there's, like, any, like, west to east migration that's happening more likely than an east to west migration, but something like this. Um, like for the seed dispersal could be also possible in my imagination. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things like about this paper is a lot of it was kind of a thought process because they were always really careful to say, hey, look, this is stuff that happened like millions of years ago. We can't really be certain in any case. So we can say our data suggests that maybe this is the case, like, oh, this to us makes this seem more likely. But they always kind of um, prefaced it with, hey, we have some uncertainty. Hey, yeah. like... There's always problems with these things. So like when you're calculating this rate of um, synonymous and non-synonymous changes, um, you put the synonymous changes as a denominator. That's basically seen as like the, the neutral, like the background level. But if that level is really close to zero, then you get really big changes because now you're dividing by a very small number. So yeah. like um, you started getting like a huge amount of uncertainty going into that calculation and that calculation is then driving what you, you call the, the species divergence. Mm. So they said like, this is a really risky way to do calculations. I mean, obviously we don't have better things, but they, they were always proposing the idea that beware, actung, actung, like throughout. Uh, sorry, they were proposing what idea? 
the idea that like you've got to be aware, you've got to be yeah. careful when you're yeah you're doing these things. Anyway, what they said at the end is that they thought it was more likely to be that there was a physical barrier of some um, kind that happened, so that there was this um, movement across the Bering Land Bridge at one point, which was like smooth. It wasn't this long distance thing. Um, and then at some point it became too much of a physical barrier and this could be the altitude um, at this this land and changes in the climate which made it like colder or drier or like harder for things to like occupy that thing. But they think that this is more likely. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is mostly based on the fact that you just have so many species which are found in both. So like you've got at least 65 genera which are found in both locations. And this is kind of an argument against there being like these specific long distance dispersal events for like each individual one. So it seems more likely to them that it was like connected. And at some point, something changed enough to make it now no longer um, possible to mingle in the middle, to meet in the middle, which is actually like the west of North America. So then there became this like physical barrier, basically. And this caused what we see now, which is the speciation event. Yeah. Um, And I think this is maybe like also supported by the fact that like, now you don't see any of these species in the West. So maybe now it is currently not ideal for them in the West. And this yeah. could be that it also at, at previous times wasn't that way. But yeah. I mean, it's really hard to make conclusions based on what you see now for things that happened millions of years ago. Yeah, so it's more um, a selective extinction of these gena- uh, gena- geni- geni. genre, genre, genera, genera of these genera um, in in the West so that the conditions there were unfavorable and so they might have been all over the uh, all over North America and then were lost over time um, in the central and west parts so that you now only find them in the East Um, maybe yeah and they also they also saw with their um, when they were looking at these different species with different ages of divergence they saw some evidence that um, there was stronger selection pressure during certain times in history like there's this kind of uneven selection pressure yeah Um, so this also is kind of I mean it's not really surprising this is like millions of years so there's been changing environments for this time so I think that that makes sense but yeah yeah, for me, the, the, the cool thing, I mean, <laughs> just because I'm a noob in the subject, I, I didn't know about this yeah. kind of split between... Um, yeah, me yeah. neither. That's that's really fascinating to think about that. Um, like, literally, when I first read it, I was like, they must have made a typo. They must have meant, like, the west of North America, not the east of North America. Like, this doesn't make sense that it's, like, the east and the east. But, yeah, yeah it really is, like... The- yeah, cool. Yeah. Thank, thank you for bringing that paper. Um, for all your listeners, you can find the paper uh, in the show notes um, below this episode, where you can then also read for yourself and go into all, I guess, a lot of math or a lot of statistics that they, um, where they calculated um, the different values to come come to their conclusions. There's not there's not too much math or statistics. Um, it's a few graphs and stuff, but it's it's not overly mm. um, complicated. It's just like a really the results are actually quite small. It's like just a lot of discussion of of what these can possibly mean because, as I said, there's this element of uncertainty where they're like, well, this or this. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. Now you can relax for a bit. Now it's my part. Speak for a long time. My favorite plant. My favorite plant um, this week. Uh, I had to quickly um, get something together because, 
yeah, I I didn't have much time, so I took uh, advantage of yesterday when we went to the botanical gardens, and I took a plant that we saw there yesterday, and I think it's a plant that we want to also write a little bit more about, but I will just present it now here uh, in this segment. It's Pontederia crassipes, or also commonly known as the common water hyacinth. Um, the water hyacinth, it's a plant that grows on water, um, it can grow up to um, one meter in height. It's ha is pretty big, has pretty big leaves and um, um, yeah, and it, it, it flowers. It has like a, a pink flower that it makes. And the interesting thing about this plant is that it's one of the fastest growing plants known um, to us. Um, they can, uh, they have uh, very short doubling times. I think in the um, in the botanical garden, they said something that some species can double within five days their biomass and they can make a, uh, insane amounts of biomass during a growth season. And that has become sort of a problem with these plants. They are um, um, native to... Uh, now I have to check again so I don't uh, say it wrong. Um, because they're an invasive species. Yes, yeah, they, they come from uh, tropical and subtropical South America, but today they're an invasive species that are found in many um, uh, comparable climate zones around the world. Um, so in, in North America, in uh, African countries, in Asia, especially in Southeast Asia. Um, and they became a massive problem there because of their quick growing time. Um, there is the example of the Victoria Lake in Africa um, that has been overgrown by this uh, water hyacinth to the point that um, yeah, it became a massive problem for the people living there and for the ecosystems. Because when a plant like this overgrows um, a lake, then it covers everything um, and there's no light that reaches lower lower water areas. Yeah, it's basically like it's um, it's something that floats on the top of the surface. So it has like kind of small like rooty structures that go into the water, but most of the mass is above the, the surface. And then it basically just causes like a field across the top of the surface. So it really blocks anything. It, it blocks, I'm imagining, gases from exchanging, but also, yeah, all of the light and just... yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the the gas part becomes especially important when these plants die because then they um, fall, like they they sink down and then they decompose. And um, doing that, they take a lot of oxygen away from the water and suffocate sort of all the other animals in there. Um, so they are pretty bad for the environment for for the ecosystems there. They're killing um, fish stock. So the the fish. Are, uh, the fishermen can't work anymore. They kill off other plant species that grow there. They are devastating to the point that for uh, in, in Europe and some other countries, it is forbidden to just do trade with these plants to avoid that some people grow them for on ornamental reasons and then they get free and then they overgrow areas. I mean, um, like Central Europe is quite safe from them because their their favorite temperatures to grow in are between 12 and 35 degrees Celsius. Celsius and below that they actually die so frost and and um, like uh, sub-zero temperatures um, kill them um, so this th that's why uh, Central Europe is quite safe just from its climate zone but in other countries like Southeast Asia where um, these days it pretty much never gets too cold they can they really thrive there I actually know them from home so my mom has like quite a small pond it's like I don't know the small the size of a small table, um, 
And yeah, she grows this in there and every like in summer, every now and then, like every week or so, she just like scoops a whole lot of water and like throws it out of the pond because it's just growing so fast that it will choke out everything else. She has like some water lilies and yeah. some, like little tadpoles and stuff. So she just has to like constantly scoop it and throw it out. Yeah, and they're uh, really hard to control. It in there deliberately or um Yeah, or if it kind of made its way in there. Yeah. They are hard to control because they can um, grow from seeds and they can make uh, thousands of seeds from a single plant, but they can also grow clonally. So often large patches of them are um, clonally grown and uh, genetically identical, um, which is also like not very special because other plants do that as well, but they do that very, very fast. Um, and there's a fun little tidbit. Um, there's much more about it because it's such an invasive species. There have been like different tr um, attempts to treat it uh, physically, chemically, and biologically. Um, it's it's sensitive to glyphosate and uh, D2.4, these two uh, most commonly used um, herbicides. But as the, as uh, all, with all herbicides, um, you usually don't want to spray them extensively, and especially not on bodies of water. In the waterways, yeah. Um, and therefore, it's it's uh, very rarely used. Um, mostly, it's they use physical and biological um, control, but uh, to limited extent. Biological control is it like a bug? Yeah, or there are. Can they be eaten by something? Um, they are. Uh, there are some insects that eat them, um, and some uh, weevils. That that do uh, feed on them uh, and some others. Um, we need to find like a use for them. There's like this. Yeah, I mean, the, any, if there's like a, a financial use for them, something that actually. One thing that they're useful for is bioenergy because they produce so much biomass that um, that's a big plus mm -hmm. that to then just like ferment them and make biogas out of them. I don't know how much that's done. Um, I've, I'm just reading here from uh, Wikipedia that there is uh, in, in um, some Bengali farmers um, are using them as fuel and so on. But uh, it seems that it's not very commonly done so far because I guess you also need a lot of infrastructure then to actually do the biomass fermentation and then also use the biogases and so on. And I imagine that in, in many of the countries where they are a massive problem, that the the other infrastructure doesn't really um, exist. But they can be eaten. Um, uh, so there are some really? uses of them. Yeah, in um, it's a carotene-rich vegetable. Oh, it's it's used in Taiwan and in uh, on the Javanese islands, um, mm -hmm. uh, and also in Vietnam. It, it says here you can eat them like like a salad and so on. So they're actually edible. But hmm. yeah, they just grow too. I wonder if they're like edible and actually taste good or if they're just like kind of bitter and disgusting. <laughs> yeah. I mean also if they're growing in like monkey like water then maybe they're not ideal for Yeah. Eat. I don't know. Yeah it could be I don't know. Do you cook them? Um, like if you're not cooking something and it's growing in like pond water it's not ideal right? Yeah. Although I think they prefer like non-brackish water because it says here that brackish water um, can deteriorate them and lead to chlorosis and they don't thrive too well. So they like... Um, brackish uh, is like salty, right? Not dirty. Ah, uh, yeah. I thought... Isn't it? I'm not... Too, uh, maybe it is. I don't know. Um, this is where <laughs> like in German, Brackwasser is, uh, I think, like... To me, it means dirty water and not necessarily... Slightly salty. Okay. Mm, it's salty. So it could be like super polluted, but not brackish still, I think. One last thing. Anyway. One last story. Um, I think I also heard this story once on a podcast, but I want to mention it here as well. Um, 
is uh, about the United States and what it does there. there it's, um, it grows in Florida there and there's also a problem there. And it came to the United States um, as a gift from uh, groups of uh, visiting Japanese people. They handed out these plants as gifts. And then they quickly took over rivers and lakes. Um, here it says they were killing fish and they stopped the shipping in Louisiana um, uh, with uh, with Whoa. an estimated 50 kilograms per square meter in Florida's waterways. Um, and they tried many different things to eradicate them. The U.S. War Department started to, to pour oil over the flowers um, to kill them off, but it oh didn't work. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't sound like a That's good idea. That's a terrible idea. I'm sorry. Like, whose idea was that? But my favorite idea here was um, that there were people um, that wanted to import a hippop hippopotamus from Africa mm. um, because they eat these plants. Um, and they wanted to farm the hippos for meat and have them eat the hyacinth um, as a sort of synergistic I've production platform yeah. On, yeah i've heard about this on a podcast as well maybe it was this american it must life. have been there was like some some scientists were very seriously considering bringing hippopotamus and the conclusion was basically that the only reason it didn't go through was that the post in those days was so slow that they didn't manage to like get organized ever so if they had, had like modern email then they like they were both really pro the idea but it would just like take six months in between each answering and then like things had kind of moved and changed but like it's clearly also a terrible idea like it's, <laughs> it's the most dangerous animal like i mean apart from like mosquitoes and bugs like yeah. hippopotamus are like fucking terrifying i mean in florida you have like uh fresh and saltwater crocodiles and uh, many other things living yeah, in the swamps that are like it would fit the zoo of dangerous animals in this in this area. I think crocodiles are mostly like not super aggressive, right? Like I think like yeah. the hippopotamus, it'll look at you and then it will come at you. Like yeah. it's it's got anger in its soul, whereas a crocodile is quite a gentle creature. It's just like yeah. I mean, they just want to sleep in the sun, a crocodile, right? But like <laughs> a hippopotamus wants to party and like fuck things up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this this American hippo bill where they wanted to put it in law that they introduced these animals um yeah it never passed because it fell one vote sh uh, one vote short so yeah it was really close call um the case that they made um back then is that all of the meat that americans were eating at the time um were invasive species so the chickens the pigs the cows the sheep lamb all of them were brought to the u.s by the settlers um and farmed there so they said why not also farm hippos I mean, obviously, like industrial hippo farming is probably a lot crazier than industrial chicken or cow farming. <laughs> yeah, and also just like, apart from that, the idea of like, hey, we've accidentally like fucked things up by bringing this invasive species. Let's bring in another invasive species to like fix the problems that we made. It really rarely works. <laughs> like it's been done many times in Australia, but like, it's just, it's not often the best idea. It really isn't. Like find something else. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that was my um, bit. Um, what was the name of the actual plant species? Pon again? Pontederia crassipes. I just wanted to hear you stumble over the Latin. <laughs> yeah, I find, but I find the English cut. word harder, the hyacinth, because it ends uh, ends on a th. Hyacinth. Hyacinth. Yeah, water hyacinth. Um, yeah, so that's that. But you know what a hyacinth is. Does it have the same kind of flower as a hyacinth? Um, it looks uh, similar, not not quite. I know that a hyacinth has this like elongated, like bulby, not bulby. Like like to me, it rem reminds me of like not not grapes is also the wrong word, but they have a very typical 
um, growth and oh yeah it does look like it. it's a little bit less complex than a higher yeah it's only got like a couple of flowers at the top of the stalk yeah. but not like yeah not a ton of them yeah it's not quite yeah, nice. it's not quite the same but um like but maybe we could breed them to be more like the beautiful hyacinths and then people would pick them <laughs> no i nice. i think i mean i thought about um like growing them at home but then i read that the trade in europe is forbidden of these plants because they are so dangerous um, to ecosystem. Some from Australia. Um, no, oh. <laughs> yeah, please don't. Now it's our time to invade your <laughs> continent with our shitty species instead of the other way around. <laughs> they actually look really pretty. I'm looking at photographs of like, yeah, yeah. It's really nice. I don't know how how long they are in bloom because it says in the article that when they're not blooming, they can easily be like the species can be confused with other species that look similar just from the foliage. Mm. Um. Um, but oh, there's such a there's a beautiful photo we put in the show notes. It's like a boat, and it looks like it's just resting on a field of hyacinths. Yeah, it's like it's it's so lovely. But then the the um the title is water hyacinths killing your lake. <laughs> so that's nice. Yeah. Researchers innovate to make money out of water hyacinths. Uh, I guess that they they do have some potential to them. Um, with the with the large amounts of biomass that they create but yeah it's still even if you would farm them you would still have to toll on the ecosystem that they suffocate everything growing below um so you just have to get rid of them somehow in some areas but like i'm not the biggest critic of glyphosate but i would also feel very very um I would uncomfortable I yeah mean. uncomfortable with like spraying the victoria lake with glyphosate to kill off all of these plants i mean then the thing is like yeah it's just going to kill every other plant as well it's not a it's not about the it's like don't put herbicides generally on whole ecosystems you put them on like one bit of land yeah. like a crop to prevent reeds but yeah yeah okay okay that's cool it's a very cool species you just definitely should do a blog post about that as well yeah yeah i wanted to read up more on them but um not today <laughs> i just want you to draw a picture of like a boat floating in a field of hyacinths that would be quite nice yeah i request that <laughs> good noted demands <laughs> now we come to the next segment diversity in the place science which is you it's me. Um, I'm doing another Mary. So I think I've done one or two Marys before. I think it's just because I'm focusing on more oldie, weldy women. Actually, a lot of oldie, weldy white women. And Mary seems to be a really common name, yeah. as it turns out. Um, I guess she was a popular lady. She did that whole birthing Jesus Christ our Lord thing. So <laughs> what you the, everybody's Mary. The plant scientists you're presenting today or who? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so previously I did Mary Emily Holmes, who was the first woman to be elected a fellow in the Geological Society of America. Today I am doing Mary Somerville, who was jointly the first female member of the Royal Astronomical Society. Mm-hmm. She shared the um, honor with Caroline Herschel, who I guess I can talk about at another date. Apart from that, she was born in 1780, um, lived for almost 100 years. Is that right? She lived until 1872. That's insane for that time, right? Like... From I I don't know I have too little knowledge about it I I always thought that people died of uh, young age until 1950, but um, that's actually not true. Yeah. It's just uh, all the average lifetimes where uh, come the, the, the short average lifetimes come from the high child mortality. So people who made it mm. to adult age 
they actually could grow old, like not as old yeah, as but commonly. She's a woman, so the chance of dying in birth, childbirth is pretty high when you have like eighteen children yeah. as well. She did not, but she did have some children, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, but so I don't anyway. know how uncommon it is. She was born in Scotland. She is Scottish. She was also a scientist and a polymath, which means she's brilliant at many different things. <laughs> um, so some other really cool facts about her. Her name was the first signature on um, the petition for the right for women to vote in Scotland, possibly in the entire UK. I think that was John Stuart Mill who was um, pushing that forward, but first signature down there. Um, and she has a little comment on that in her autobiography where she says British laws are adverse to women, which I like it, state <laughs> it as it is. Like, don't, yeah. like, call a spade a spade, don't put it around the idea. Um, she's now also on the £10 note of Scotland. So that's as of like only a couple of years ago, um, they changed that and put her on there. And when she died, the Morning Post declared that whatever difficulty we might experience in the middle of the 19th century in choosing a king of science, there could be no question about who the queen was. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, queen of science. Um, so just a little bit about her background. Her family was kind of quite like in poverty. So her father was in the Navy. So they weren't like, they were seen still as genteel, like they were seen to still have class, but he didn't get very good pay. Mm -hmm. Um and because of that, her mum was also supplementing the income of the family. She was like doing crops and, and selling milk and stuff like that, which was probably like a good like role model, like strong female, like working. Yeah. Probably good for her. Um, and her father also was like quite pro her education. So I'm not sure if it was because of his own situation, but he wanted her to like learn to write and keep accounts and stuff. So they sent her to quite an expensive boarding school to get her education. Unfortunately, she then married. Um, she married a distant cousin. He took her to London, but he did not think much of a woman's capacity to pursue academic interests. So basically, while she was married to him, he kind of shut all of that shit down. Uh. But then she got rid of him. I mean, he actually just died, <laughs> but I think that was probably good for her because she went got back to Scotland and immediately got her learning back on. So she had like a short period where she wasn't doing much because her husband was kind of a dick. Um, and then she went back and like got into everything and really got into it. Um, because she was a woman, she got married again, also to a cousin, which what's that about? Um, but this guy was much more supportive. So he was um, encouraging um, that she pursue her education and she got really into this this field of learning and she actually became a mathematic tutor to Ada Countess of Lovelace who you might have heard of I don't I didn't. okay so she's like one of the the most famous um female mathematicians okay. we we'll have to do her at some stage and she's um involved basically her mathematics has some relevance for modern computing um so she's one of these really like genius women of the time um, but I think if I remember rightly, Ada actually had um, migraines her whole her whole life. And I think even she believed that she got the migraine because she was trying to force her female brain to do like the male mathematics. Uh, that was kind of the disgusting uh, yeah. fact of the time. Yeah. But so Somerville kept on working and she conducted experiments to look at the relationship between like light and magnets. Um, she published her first paper. Um, I have a quote from Sir David Brewster, who... Um, <laughs> called her the most extraordinary woman in Europe, a mathematician of the very first rank with all the gentleness of a woman. <laughs> Which, like, <laughs> boo. <laughs> also, like, his claim to fame, according to Wikipedia, is that he invented the kaleidoscope. <laughs> 
Although he's also said that to be the mod- the father of modern optics or some such nonsense. But like, I don't know. Just imagine if somebody was like, <laughs> Yoram is a is a brilliant science communicator. Also, he has a very nice penis. <laughs> like, it's, it's true just, like, though. <laughs> Oh my god. You brought that up. For our listeners. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was going to say beard, but then I was like, it's not like beard is not offensive enough. It's not like one of these, like, I, I don't know what's like a male with all the gruffness of a man or with all the deep voice, voicedness of, of, a, of a man. I don't know. It's a bit ridiculous. Yeah. Um, some other famous things about her um, you can read. She has a, a pretty good article on Wikipedia. So if you want to know all of the different things she was researching, as I said, polymaths, so lots of topics. But she was also pro the idea that there might be something past Uranus. So at the time, they had only got up to Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Uranus. So she was like, hey, it's moving weird. Something's going on mm-hmm. in that direction. And a few years later, they discovered, hey, look, there's Neptune. Um, she also wrote like one of the first English, actually the first English textbook on physical geography, um, and it like stayed in classrooms until the early 20th century. So this is quite good. Um, and nowadays, she still has like she has a crater named after her on the moon. There's like an, an island named after her in Canada. Um, yeah, as I said, she's in the ten dollar note, so she's kind of managed to stick around as far as a woman in science. So. Cool. All in all, she seems pretty cool. Okay, thank you. What was her name again? Uh, Mary Somerville. Mary Somerville. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you for bringing that. <laughs> and I, I, I'd never know how to tra- transition into the next segment, so I'm just going to press this button. This oh, is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun And I want to start um, with, I actually have two pieces of follow-up from stories that we brought, I think, two weeks ago or a week ago and two weeks ago. I think there's two stories. So the first one is um, this PNAS paper that we talked about, um, I think, two weeks ago about the female orgasm and uh, how it evolved and how much, uh, how useful it is, evolutionary speaking. Um, and did we talk about that? Yeah, we talked about that. It was a cat fact um, because it was also true for cats. <laughs> was it though? Um, yeah, I mean, in the research, uh, they did it on on rabbits and also talked about cats in the in the research. But uh, why I want to follow it up is it turned into a little bit of a shitstorm for the PNAS Twitter account um, because the person in charge there chose to whenever they were illustrating the story and they t- they tweeted about it a couple of times. Um, they used pictures of um, like stock images of women orgasming, uh, which is weird because in the story, like the the paper has some relevance to human biology, but it's not done in humans and it's it's done in rabbits. And so whenever they talked about this, they have like these these uh, images. I'm I'm sending you the link over. You can you you, you tell me if you find this like okay to 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 illustrate um, scientific story about studying orgasms in female rabbits and figuring out the deal between like the clitoris where it's positioned in the um, sexual <laughs> oh, shit yeah uh. um so yeah, that that turned into some backsla- backlash, and uh, PNAS actually reacted to that and said that they um, took action by um, I think like they didn't say if they 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 fired the person responsible, but they said that they are um, the the person responsible will take classes on this or will be educated to to deal better with this. So they actually reacted to this in I think 
an okay way given the the circumstances i mean obviously they can't go sorry i got distracted by the images what happened <laughs> pnas reacted to this <laughs> and says that um they uh, although now like i'm looking at the, the tweets that i bookmarked and some of them have been deleted so it's even harder to piece together again um but they said that the person responsible will um, not do this uh, this stuff again, and that they will. I don't. I don't know. Like on one hand, like sex sells. Um, I I'm very conflicted now. I'm so. Yeah. Sex sexualizing women, like just overly sexualizing only women, not ideal. Having said that, this is specifically a study about female orgasm, and. I would like from as far as sex sell in women, I would actually like to see more images of we women actually orgasming as opposed to just like providing sexual services to men. So like, yeah, as far as it like, but the, to me, to, to me, they're, they're clearly decorative in this context. They're clearly decorative and gratuitous, but like also that's the world we live in. Like this is like this is sex. So I'm not. Yeah, I just like the first thing like. Picture is not appropriate. So, like, the the PNS news, this is not okay. Picture is not appropriate. Study is about rabbit, not humans. Yeah. This tweet should be retracted. I, I don't know. Like, yeah, this this person, he went... Like, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous because it's probably, like, a young man tweeting it. This is kind of, like... It, it, honestly, I would really care about it. This is, this is probably a problem. Like, I would care. If a woman was tweeting this photo, I'd be like, hey, more power to you. Like, represent. If it's, like, a young, like, dude be like, uh, women, yeah. hot women, then I'm, like... <laughs> Yeah. Am I biased? I think I'm just really biased against like men now. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm too, but... Um... Like, I, I do think like women's orgasms should be represented more on the internet. This is actually one of the problems. Like, yeah, yeah. I Probably not in this context. Yeah, exactly. I think here it's, it's the context that matters and um, that here they... The women are decorative object... Uh, to to decorate this article, the news about the article, and it's not really mm. about like power to to women in this context, um, the way this is framed. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I can't I mean, I, I can't find like out the, the response. Oh no, actually, I found a response here. Um, so PNS re uh, reacted to this and said, recent tweets that went out from PNS News about the paper, an experimental test of the ovulatory homologue model of female organism, were inappropriate and offensive. We have taken the tweets down. We apologize and are reviewing the decision making with those involved. So, which to me reads like they um, they're getting schooled a little bit on what what happens and how they choose uh, images and so on. And I yeah, I think this is an okay response from PNAS to this. Um, I don't think it is as bad as some of the people who try to stir the the shitstorm here made it out to be. But I think it's something that you really have to to keep in mind when you illustrate scientific news that also the images they are framing and. Um, yeah, to me, this these these look like stock images made by men for men, and not necessarily like empowering mm. um, displays of female sexuality. I'm like trying to scroll on their Twitter to see like what else they put up, and if they're normally doing these kind of things, or it doesn't look like it. It looks like this is quite like a, a weird. Yeah, I mean the um, the person whose link I sent just sent you now. Um, he also screenshotted some other tweets about neuronal response to visual sexual stimuli is independent of biological sex, according to a new study. And then there's an image of a woman in heavy makeup with a guy like she's in, in lingerie. He's um, like you can see only that he's topless and they're looking at um, a laptop together, apparently in bed. Um, 
then for the same article they have a different set of the same set of stock photos there where the woman is like he's looking at the computer screen and she's like leaning into him um, and then they have another one again on the same paper I mean that says it's a study about actual visual sexual stimuli yeah. so then like this I don't know so that again like if he's if the person who's tweeting it is offended because he doesn't think that women should be overly objectified on the internet that's one thing but he might also be offended because he doesn't like women being naked or he's a prude like he also could, might could like be. hate women ever having sexuality and then i'm like i'm really like conflicted like what's where where's he coming from because it really matters to me like what's yeah his, i don't know i is he just like like this is inappropriate women should never be shown sexy like how dare women be shown having pleasure during sex this is disgusting only men have pleasure during sex if that's I his don't, stance, I don't, I'm not so i don't pro. think it is i don't think it is um I think let's ask him. <laughs> we can ask him. Um, he's a professor in uh, oh at UC gosh. Davis. Um, Dear professor, please write into us. <laughs> I hope he's coming from the right place. I think. I, mean, I think I, he I, is. I um, yeah. Um, so that's just uh, the follow up on this. Uh, his, yeah, his second wording is like these are ridiculous, and I agree with that. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Do you do yeah, you have you another, have another like? Do you want to jump in with something else, or should I do the second follow up? Nah, do the second follow up. I don't have too much. The today. other story that we had was about the gay genes, right? Uh, was the story about there's no single gay gene, um, where they did this genome-wide association study um, of people um, that were questioned if they had same-sex uh, encounters, or say, um, not necessarily if they identify as queer, um, and then they looked at the genomes and tried to find things that match up and they couldn't really find anything they, they at best they could only i think around like 40 or 50 percent of the probability could be explained with a, a genetic background and then it was a set of genes not a single gene locus mm. um but, and it was kind of controversial the study yeah. like I, whether they should even be looking for these things um, yeah et cetera, et cetera. but they um yeah, but they also made a point that you can't predict from genetic information the sexual orientation of a person. It's something they said in the paper. Um, but still, people, in this case from Uganda, made an app where you can look in genetic information for these few genes that they mapped out in the study there, and they're marketing this as a way to search in a, in a gene pool for the gay genes, essentially, and to figure to figure out if a person is homosexual or not, um, and that also g gave some backslash uh, backlash on, uh, on on Twitter from some people that that raised the problems about like the the ethics of these studies because even if in the study they're super careful about the wording and about the framing and everything, um, it doesn't take much to for for some people to take this and run with it and then market an app that can tell you if uh, based on genetic information if somebody is gay or not which is like scientifically not working like it's it's okay so i'm googling it and uganda is definitely problematic as far as their approach to homosexuality there seems to be a proposal for death penalty for gay sex yeah um uganda announces kill the gay laws imposing death penalty to homosexuals is what's come up in, in just the last couple of days so i didn't even know about that so that thanks for bringing that to my attention Yoram. yeah um so okay this is definitely something going towards eugenicsy then like it's definitely got terrible intentions yeah um, yeah that's why i like I, but also like part of me is very amused like it's just bizarrely convoluted like if you don't want to have sex with a gay person don't like sequence their dna and look for genes just 
choose somebody of the opposite sex to have sex. Like, this is just like... I don't know, it's like bizarrely convoluted. If you don't want to be gay, just don't make out with somebody from your own sex. Like, this is solved. Problem solved. If you don't like gay marriage, don't marry somebody of the same sex. Problem solved. Yeah, yeah, but... um I don't think that they will take it like that. The people who are using studies like this study um, for their homophobic agenda, for their homophobic... But it's it's so bizarre. It's like, okay, so they see you, Yoram, and they're like, okay, I think you might be gay. Let me sequence your G- DNA. Oh, you have these genes. There's like this much percentage chance that maybe you have some genes that yeah. like are linked to gay. But they've never... Like, you're married with a child. They've never seen you make out with another man or fuck another man. Like... Like what is the end game here? Like, I don't know. I mean, this is um, I, I don't I don't think this is like an official um big app. This is uh, like it's it's published on. No, a- no, but somebody came up with their with it in their mind. They thought we need this app so we can like beware of the gays or something. Yeah, right. Like there's something. I I don't know. But it's so convoluted. It could be for like in vitro fertilization, for example, that they that they want to use that screening and then abort fetuses that are that uh, come up positive in this uh, ridiculous essay and so on. Mm. Yeah, eugenics is the definite, like, obvious answer. Yeah, right? I, I mean, there's a long article, or, or not an article, like a description of the app um, that I didn't read through, but there is an image of a pregnant woman and then a diagram of, like, different gendered babies and then whether or not they have uh, one single gene here that's overexpressed that would link to um, homosexuality or that they link to homosexuality, um, which clearly indicates this eugenics approach. And yeah, I just wanted to, to raise this because when we talked about it, um, we were a little bit critical, but not like to me, it was more the, back then the story was look, obviously, there's not a gay gene. Um, it's way more complicated than that. And um, stop looking for these. And now we have sort of scientific proof that there is no such thing as a single gay gene that we can look for or select for or something like this or select against often but in homophobic um, contexts. Um, and I just wanted to bring this up here because this shows like how dangerous these studies can still be even when framed correctly and understood correctly and how uh, this shows how important it is to have a good ethical discussion about the research that you're doing even if you're not aiming... In, inherently for something bad like I don't think the researchers of the the, the the initial study were aiming for anything bad with the study but an outcome of this is now this app where people are marketing it as a tool for eugenics um, based on that they, they directly uh, cite that and I don't have a clear like opinion on this where I say like they shouldn't have done the study or they like, like I didn't I think it's important to do to such research, but I think we also have to really strongly uh, have ethical discussions during the research, like when setting it up um, during the research and when publishing it, and how how it's 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 framed and so on. Yeah, um, yeah, that's just the the follow up on these two things. Unfortunately, both are not too I fun. Really like, I've- yeah, I'm really not sure. Like, I'm not. I'm not sure that I think that. Uh, I think there being stupid people in the world is not a good reason to not do research. Um, yeah. Because otherwise, we would never have looked. We should never have invented CRISPR-Cas because there are some people who want to to edit people with CRISPR-Cas, which maybe is not the best idea yet. Um, maybe ever, but definitely not yet. Um, 
So I, I find this challenging. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm kind of pro-nanny state. I think people should be limited for putting, like, easy ways to make bombs and guns on the internet. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, that's, it's very complicated. That's exactly my point. And there's a lot of things now which, like, um, when you get towards, like, things which are disabilities, where it starts to also become um, vague, like, at what point is it okay to remove hardship from people's life without trying to purify our population and make it less diverse and like create these master races? Like this is this is quite a complex situation. Um, yeah, yeah, that's why I think these ethical boards are very important that they have to be that they have to exist and be powerful because like we can't make these decisions not now and probably also with our uh, education we can't easily come to a good co a conclusion uh, on our own here but there are people who pretty much do nothing else but think about these very hard questions and there are half ways to come up to, to come to conclusions there and to recommendations and i think it's really important to invoke these committees of of, of experts in the planning of such projects in the um perf performing these projects and yeah, publishing but them. at the same time like i mean <laughs> That's kind of deferring responsibility, and it's also like you can only put so much trust in those like committees. As I mean, in Uganda, that committee might choose that it's good to look for gay genes so we can eliminate gays. It's 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 only the political context. And my government chose to take indigenous children away from their family, like only fifty or seventy years ago now. Like, and this was a committee of government officials yeah. who came together and said this is for the best this is what will help these people and clearly it was terrible and clearly it was morally wrong and, and traumatic and like committees are not <laughs> so great I, I like, don't know I, mean, I, I'm, I'm, I totally hear you I, I guess uh, I think they are not like forever the perfect solution but I see it like a biosafety officer right like I personally don't know all of the like rules and things you should do with biosafety when working um, with uh, GM plants, for example, or like for GM plants, I know a lot of them, but there are other biosafety things. Um, but there's a biosafety officer, and I go can go to her or him and talk about this. Yeah, but stuff. again, you've seen that you've seen that happen in the wrong direction, where the, the the safety officers don't know what to do, so they act too much and they prevent women from working while pregnant, like completely prevent women from doing any work just because they got pregnant. Like, and this is the same situation where a committee has decided to enforce safety and ruin women's careers like so you've seen this work badly. yeah yeah and in both situations if there was no safety like happening then it would be dangerous but too much safety can also be a bad situation so like i don't trust the committees i mean yeah but what like, what what the committees screw people yeah. the committees only work for like whoever the committee is which is usually like the status quo which at the moment, it's not really going to serve minorities. Yeah, that, that that's definitely that's definitely an issue. But I I still think that like sensibly set up committees are one of the better ways to approach this, as to, to opposed to having like a person who is really good at bioinformatics and genome analysis making having him or her making the ethical decision about the research. Um, I think they're even less able to do that. Um, than even a poorly um, set up committee. So that's why I, yeah, I just, I don't say that these committees should have like 100% of the but decision, also... but they, they should exist and they should like be involved 
and then there has to be a process. But you're also making a lot of assumptions about the understanding of the committee. Like in Germany and in Europe, we have committees who are non-scientists who are making decisions about GMOs and not just about GMO usage on our continent, but about the usage of GMOs across the world by, by extension. And in this case, I would argue it would be better if there were more scientists on the committees and less politicians on the committees because the politicians are serving some bizarre... Yeah, But in these ethics committees, I'm not thinking about politicians or like people representing um, like authorities, Um, but there are trained like social studies experts um, that go on these panels. But a hundred years ago, ethics committees meant religious committees. Yeah, but I'm not talking about a hundred. I'm not talking about a hundred years ago. But I mean, so in a hundred years' time, we realize that what we thought now was also wrong. Like, I don't think we've been right for a long enough time to be confident in our ability to right be right there's so many wrongs that we've done in such recent yeah. history that i think I'm like just, I'm, i don't trust the I'm, people i'm saying it's not a perfect system i think it's like one of the better ones that we have um but yeah who would be in your committee like your old boss your no, current boss no. angela merkel no, no. like me like who like i I've, I've known a person who's been on a committee for um like writing up a paper for in vitro diagnostics like an ethical statement in germany there's the the ethic rat um which is a body that like advises um decision makers on uh, like on ethical questions questions of ethics um and she was a trained uh, philosopher um and she was part of it and i think in this case because in germany is a little bit traditionalist there in the committee there were also people from like representing the protestant and catholic church but also scientists and also like I other mean, like like um social studies like other like philosophers and sociologists and like like, sorry, but should should the Catholic and Protestant Church get weighted say no, in not, what happens in my womb? I'm not saying like, that's the, the committee that I would choose, but this is like this is a committee. But that's my problem. The committee that you would choose doesn't exist so far. Currently, the committees we have are those committees, are the ones with like not the right people, not the scientists who are making choices about important things which affect minorities in very real ways. Yeah, um, I yeah. Like, I can't believe uh, a, the Catholic Church gets a representative on committees that discard, like chooses what happens in my womb. Unless the Catholic Church actually impregnated me, I don't want them having a say. That's... Like, any say. Not even one voice in 20. They shouldn't be there. Because I'm not Catholic, so why are they talking about my I, womb? I agree with that. Um... Well, then why is that a good committee? I'm not saying that this was on a, like a particularly good committee, but I'm saying... But that's the no, committees but, but, that we have but, right but now. None of them are still good. like the the result that came out there that I that I read. Um, I, I, it's been a while ago now, but I remember it as being like a sensible approach to it. Like it's not that there was sudden. Yeah, I bet you the Catholic Church didn't vote for the sensible approach. But then there were oh, there, there were outvoted, and I think like in at. <laughs> I think in like university context or research body context, you don't have the church representatives anymore in these these ethical bodies. I'm just saying there's experts, especially from social studies, like sociologists, philosophers, and people like this who deal with like these questions of uh, responsibility as a society um, that I would choose as experts in such a committee to advise on questions of ethics. 
this 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 would be my approach to it and i don't think that this is like the perfect approach forever i think it's something that has to be constantly critically evaluated like everything has to be because as you say we constantly get smarter and look back at decisions that we took in the past that were terrible um but i find it important to still have them i think having no com no ethical input no people no uh, like outside of science experts on ethics um involved th leads to worse results like i don't want to in a, in live in a world where it's just the people doing the like the the ground research that are deciding on the ethics of their own research because most of them will be like yeah obviously it's good like i can i can't see how anything bad happens there it's something that we see now in in um in uh, it tech uh, not, not it technology is, is double there like but in in like in Informatic, informatics like computer research mm -hmm. um for a long time there were also uh, a, a complete lack of like ethical uh, just like looking at ethical questions when it comes to big data analysis to like uh, privacy rights and so on and that lead led to computer engineers just deciding for themselves and thinking like oh yeah obviously it's it's fine to track the people like we're not doing anything bad here and we see lots of bad things happening coming from that because there were no outside people involved. I mean, you're like, I, I completely agree with you. There should be outside people involved. I just want to raise the very important point that the current situation almost always still involves the status quo being overrepresented and minorities being underrepresented. And one example is I, I went quite recently to a talk at the our institute. So um, we're part of the Max Planck Society and the Max Planck Society had a workshop, which was not even a workshop. It was just a seminar to explain to people what options there are, um, which are trying to improve diversity in the Max Planck Society. So as you know, the Max Planck Society has a really terrible um, rate of women in particular, but also other minorities in positions of power there's really a high drop-off and even in our um, science we do biological science which is generally seen as a more um, female science compared to like physics and mathematics and um, yeah like computer sciencey things but they were kind of discussing what resources are available so there's there's certain funding which is put there to encourage women um, and to help women in these early career stages where they're often dropping out and one of the women in the audience pointed out that there's a really big problem with this and that's that almost all of these funds requires that she goes through a middle-aged white man. So she needs to either be um, suggested, like um, put forward her name by her old professor or um, it goes through a committee which is like heavily male-oriented, like the selection process. And really the big problem is that often like you need a man to first um, recommend you before you are applicable for, for any of these things, which is, makes it very hard if part of the reason that you're not getting um, support in your system is that you have certain personality traits which maybe don't work as well with those men or that those men don't. Um, yeah. And so, so my general question point was more like, yes, I agree, outside's fine but I see so many problems with committee and the one that you raised about the church having a say in what happens in my uterus is just a really nice example. Yeah. Like I really don't want the church anywhere near my, any of my body parts, to be honest, like no offense to the church. I'm sure you're lovely. Stay away from me. <laughs> yeah. like, I mean, I also, um, I, I would not even say no offense to church, but um, <laughs> yeah. I think, I feel like I'm Catholic enough to like give offense to the Catholic church. I'm not Protestant enough to be to them. Like, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I 
Yeah, I think we should conclude <laughs> this bit of discussion, but I have a, <laughs> a bit of like, or do you have something else that you wanted to, to say here? Um, I have a pretty thing. Uh, because, yeah, I have, I mean, I talk for so long now, I have just one thing that just fits so well here um, um, about exactly the way of, of bringing female pe um, people in uh, STEM forward. Um, it's an article from Caltech Letters, um, an opinion piece, um, It's called The Viewpoint, Feynman, Harassment, and the Culture of Science. Um, the main... Was this like a Feynman? Feynman? Feynman the, the Feynman, Feynman, the famous physicist. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, written by Ida uh, Bemart. Uh, um, she's a planetary science graduate student uh, from Caltech. Um, and she wrote this opinion piece. The main conclusion here um, is uh, we shouldn't... We shouldn't mourn. Uh, let me pull up the sentence because she puts it so much better than I uh, say. Why do we bemoan the exit of sexual harassers and those who otherwise harm their colleagues from the, the scientific community? Instead, we should mourn the loss of all the promising scientists that they uh, that they forced out, whose contributions will we never be known. Um, and she makes the point here um, that uh, starting from her own um, story and uh, from her own history where um, she and other female students um, all decided individually to leave academia because of bad um, experiences with superiors that were um, sexually harassing them in, in different ways, um, And then, but she also made the point here with um, um, uh, Feynman, I, I forgot his first name, Richard, I think. Yeah, Richard Feynman, um, that he himself, uh, although he, he was a very important person for physics, had a very strange approach um, to women. Um, uh, strange is, he, he was a sexist, essentially, um, calling women bitches if they wouldn't... Um, um, Yeah, do anything with him at bars. Um, he, from his own, uh, from an interview with him, he, uh, or I think from his autobiography, he said, "I adopted the attitude that those bar girls are all bitches, that they aren't worth anything, um, and all they're in there for is to get you to buy them a drink." And he goes on like this, um, and so he wasn't. And he even uh, compared Mar Marie Curie, one of the few women that got uh, uh, recognition on a scientific level. Um, early on uh, he mostly saw her that she's um, uh, the message I intended to convey was nobody thinks of Madame Curie as a woman as feminine with beautiful hair bare breasts and all that they only think of the radium part so he also like sort of degraded her to an object for his own like sexual gaze at her <laughs> I am aggressively pulling the finger at the cat. Like, yeah. ah, and this makes me so yeah, angry. So, but, but it does segue. Can I segue to another rage point? <laughs> I just want to say, read this article. It's very well written. Um, she makes she makes good points. And we really, we should worry a lot about this um, uh, sexist, behave, uh, sexist environment because it drives out great voices from, from research that we... That, that we're missing um, because of these abusive systems around it. Now you can segue. Uh, Nobel Prizes came out this week, um, which is another interesting co topic. Um, some I'm also angry there. Over, <laughs> <laughs> over the fact that um, one example is that the literature, the Nobel Prize for Literature, they discussed last year that they would try to be less Eurocentric. Um, and again, they chose two Europeans. Um, one of the Europeans happens to be a genocide denier, so... And um, 
previously supporting Slobodan Milošević's regime, yeah. which involved massacre of many people. Um, and and um, he admits to hitting his uh, wife. Uh, yeah, seriously. Um, in in a, there's an interview with him where he's asked about hitting his wife, and he's like, and he's like, yeah, it's not really. I didn't hit her in the stomach. I I kicked her in the butt and I slapped her face maybe, but it was in self defense. I wanted to to work, and she was annoying me. That's literally his. That's not really what self-defense. That's literally means, his is quote, it? and he was. Uh, Unless she was annoying him with like a gun or a shotgun. No, no, object. she was just like stopping from work. Oh, so he's a terrible. Okay. He's a terrible so, human. Yeah, I haven't read too much about it because I I sort of read the first thing about him denying the this genocide or this like supporting a regime which was genocidal, and I rage quit. Um, but yeah, I think I mean the other argument just that we keep on looking to the global north for the best so maybe it's time to start looking in other places yeah. um in all <laughs> situations and it's just so depressing and i get there's a lag in this thing i understand that like the people who are being awarded these prizes are 80 years old and things were different you know they were making it big time like 40 years ago so there's going to be a little bit of a lag but I mean, I'm sorry, non-European countries have also been around for more than 40 years. So let's maybe yeah. work on this a little bit. Yeah. Like, Yeah. And uh, I, I know that I'm yeah. sort of <laughs> deflating my own, po o uh. own point from earlier. But in this case, uh, the co committee for the Nobel <laughs> Prize. Committee. <laughs> they are not the greatest minds, <laughs> to put it lightly. <laughs> I guess yeah, people were pretty disappointed. Yeah, especially after last year's. The literature thing was yeah, the big. Last yeah. year's controversy about the way these panels are set up and the decision making taking place and all the controversy, and now they yeah the the other Nobel Prize laureate is is a Polish woman and she gets completely like forgotten behind the <laughs> shit show <laughs> of. We should talk about her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm I have no yeah. idea about literature, so I can't say anything qualified. No, it's fine. Um, and I also, as I said, I didn't read very much. So guys, feel free to like tell us why we're wrong and maybe he's a lovely person. I, I, I don't, don't think so. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm also talking out of my ass a lot of the time. So who knows? Um, let's move on to something kind yes, of lovely. Yes, please. Um, I saw a something on Microcosmic. It's a blog, um, which I think I originally saw via Plante on Facebook. Um, and it just says, um, it's a quote originally from Albert Camus, who I'm not sure who that is. Um, French philosopher an and um, existentialist, Albert Camus. Oh, look at you. Fancy, <laughs> fancy. Camus. <laughs> okay, so Monsieur Camus said, autumn is the second spring where every leaf is a flower. And this is just a collection of really beautiful pictures. Um, I didn't send it to Yoram, so he has no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but just really lovely pictures of um, autumn leaves rearranged in many different ways and just like beautiful yeah. colors generally being yeah. lovely. And I'm really enjoying autumn right now. We have like all of the leaves are orange and yellow, but we had this like sudden heat wave. So we've been having like 20 degree temperature and blue skies and uh, my heart yeah. is like shiny and bright and beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, it's really it was also today it was lovely with the sun and um yeah it's uh autumn can be quite nice see we're not always angry guys sometimes we're happy uh, <laughs> we hate bigotry but we love leaves <laughs> more leaves less bigotry that should definitely be the title of the episode <laughs> we hate bigotry but we love leaves <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let, me, let me write that down um do you have something else 
I have one more fact. I do I have a cat one, but I think it's better for next week for Halloween. Have you got a good? I cat have fact? a medium good cat fact, but I have one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I have. Yeah, let's let's finish it off because I think we've been talking for way too long. Maybe you have to cut our rant down because I think this is a bit of a. Long yeah, but that's work. Um, that <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that work. Um, uh. Okay, then let me let me finish on the on cats, the cat cats, fact. Cats, cats. Let me just like pull it up. Uh, okay, I found a thing from The Guardian which yeah. <laughs> talks about a new vegetable and I'm using new inverted quotes. It's called celtus. Can you guess what it is? A celery, yeah. a version of a, a different kind of celery. It's like basically a mix between celery, celery and lettuce. So it's kind of like a lettuce head which grows on a long stalk. Um, it's not new. As with many new things, and I'm using a little inverted quotation um, marks, it's something which has been known outside of the West for a long time. So it's quite commonly used um, in China. Um, uh, it's it's La Lactusa sativa varia augustana, and it's... Um, called asparagus lettuce i think in english but it has um a chinese name wosun is um the name that they give to the stems of the celtus and yumaikai i'm sure i said that wrong but that's given to the leaves um and they have different applications so you can um stir fry the stems um you can braise the leaves in in broth and this is like new hipsters have now found this it's it's been found in a um a restaurant, I think, in Australia, actually, um, and they say this is going to be like the new, the new vegetable of the yeah. future. <laughs> the supermodel of vegetables is the name of the. What, the what makes it so special? Uh, versatile, versatile, dainty, new, fascinating. Okay. Toothsome. The word toothsome is used as an adjective, which is okay. kind of cool. Uh, yeah, I dare say it's one of the most elegant vegetables going. Okay. <laughs> um, let's. I want to try. I, I want to try. It. I'm, I'm, <laughs> no? I'm getting hungry now. I want to try um, it. Yeah. But let's let's All end right. let's cat let's cat end cat on a cat fact while. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Yarm. What? I might be cat getting fact. a cat. Yeah. We talked about this yesterday. Oh, not me actually, but I am looking for houses in London now, and I found a house which I might be able to share with somebody, and they really want a cat and. They mentioned it as part of the biography on Spare Room, which is like a, a UK um, website for finding housemates um, or spare rooms, obviously. And at the end of her description, she said, oh, I might be looking for a cat to have a cat in the future. So let me know how you feel about it. And I just like messaged her straight away. I was like, I love cats. This is all you need to know about <laughs> me. Like, please let me come to your room. So now, like, maybe I'll be like the, the auntie. That would of a be really cat. good. That's my um, what you could do then yeah. is um, let me play it. I don't know if this has sound. What I'm playing. There's a video on Twitter. Um, no, it doesn't have sound. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's a video on Twitter. It's a little bit like The Shining because you see, wait, I, I'll, I'll send you the link so you can enjoy it. Um, Is it just the cat's eyes shining? <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's uh, way worse. Sending it to you. Um, it's a cat um, that you see first, you see a white um, sh uh, shower curtain. Oh, I know it's like I know there's sound. I just didn't. 
and it's yeah so you see a shower curtain and then you see a shadow coming and then you see claws going through a shower curtain and then you see a cat like ripping up the shower curtain and making a hole and putting its head through the hole and then licking the water that's coming down in the shower and so the person to whom this is happening um she started then drawing on the shower curtain like faces and things so the cat would put his face through the hole and be like inside of a super mario head and things like that and it's just like a, a cool like cute ginger cat that apparently destroys like curtains on a weekly basis <laughs> so she constantly has to replace these shower curtains because that cat wants to <laughs> drink water in the shower <laughs> it's super cute my cat used to also like shower water so maybe there's something about like do they like oh, it's, it's warm maybe or they like that it's running um I think in Australia, like, the water is very chlorinated, especially compared to here. So I think, like, they like when it's fallen already and then it kind of sits on the ground for a bit yeah. and the, the chlorine, like, evaporates. But cats are also just perverts. I think they just like watching people naked. It's just, it's, it's a fun thing. <laughs> we'll link it in the description. And I imagine it being a little bit terrifying if you would be sleeping over and taking a shower and suddenly you have a cat, like, ripping the shower curtain apart and then just, like, look through and stare at you. Also, his name is Masuka, but maybe it's like Massacre. Like, maybe that's his. <laughs> no, get that? Mas- <laughs> no, okay. Fuck it. It's time to go. <laughs> We're done, guys. Uh, and with that, that, we follow us on all of the social media. We're at Plants Per Pets on Twitter. Uh, We're at Plant. Yeah. On Instagram and Facebook, we're at Plants and Pipettes. We're usually much more positive than we are in the podcast, like much less ranting, many more pictures of pretty It was plants. just the occasions here, like for next week's episode, all my, my <laughs> facts that I looked up, they are actually fun and much less depressing and annoying. We really need to like balance out the ranting. The thing is like the rants always lead from one rant to another, like this is like such... Like, speaking of being pissed off. <laughs> There's another thing. Yeah, maybe we should have like special bonus episodes where we're just ranting um, and then people can choose not to listen to them and then we have the cathartic feeling of letting it all out and people... Yeah, but I think you can do that on your own time without having to record. Like, nobody needs to hear that ever then. It's just like... And we all... That is like mostly the definition of our relationship already that we just like meet up and rant about things that are pissing us off. Like yeah. so um yeah we also have a a website where you find uh, a lot less rants and more um interesting stories about informative molecular plant uh, biology um we we had yeah we write about recent research papers and also more general topics yeah we just had last last week so the week now that we're recording we had a cool story um about um two things actually that i quite liked um the one the first one about a baby chino about arabidopsis milk um how we not we like how researchers um engineered arabidopsis (laughs) in a way that the fats uh in the seeds um, resemble the fats in human breast milk um which is a tricky thing, but very, very interesting story. And another one about a forgotten organelle. And you have to go to our website to figure out which organelle that is. It looks like an onion. <laughs> yeah, I, I quite like the guesses of the people when we ask them what they are. So yeah, check out our website. Um, every week we have new articles there about molecular plant research. And yeah, write us, leave us, leave us comments. comments, write us on oh. iTunes. Yeah. You can read us on the website or on Facebook or Instagram too. But like not on based on our looks. That will make us sad. <laughs> yes. Please. Uh, although we, we have some very pretty pictures of us now on Instagram from yesterday's little field trip. And our opening and closing music is Caravana. 
by Philip Gross. I'm not giving you the room there to intervene and tell me how I'm not very pretty in these pictures. You are beautiful in every single way. That was just like singing. I'm going to get sued now. That was just playing through my head when I was posting it on Facebook. Like this, like Christina Aguilera. I just kept on going. Words can't oh. bring me down. Don't. We can't do more than 10 seconds till we get sued. <laughs> uh, thank goodness we're so off key that nobody can recognize <laughs>